if you want to use evidence-based investment, most people become wealthy out of real estate through capital growth. How you control that capital growth is, of course, a big part of the puzzle. And there are three components to that. There is you, there is the renter, and there is the tax man. Obviously, uh, the dynamic of those three really depends on whether you're going to be negatively geared, neutrally geared, or positively geared, or positive cash flow. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, show me the money. We're going to dig into some cash flow strategies when it comes to real estate investment, pros, the cons, the good, the bad, the ugly, when it comes to the idea of positive cash flow. Hey, uh, if it's your first time tuning into the show, welcome aboard. Play the program in double speed, get your life back. And of course, all you regular urban property investors, welcome back. Uh, you know the rules. You can always dart about and listen to some alternative podcasts I've done because they're all lessons on real estate. Hey, Rafi's gone viral again. Uh, he is an opera singing bull terrier. And uh, I tell you what, he is clocking up the views. So, hey, if you want to hang out with me and my bull terrier, Rafi the Gopnik dog, feel free to also log in to Rafi Fuddy Duddy. Uh, on his Instagram. Hey, I don't know about you, but uh, the world is very good in my world. So let's kick off the show. Obviously, there is a difference when it comes to how real estate is seen. Quite often, we look for different types of products in the real estate market to balance portfolio building. Now, it's probably fair to say that for most property investors, buying one Property is a great achievement, but of course, if you want to own multiple properties, it is a bit of a balancing act because at the end of the day, our wage only has so many $100 bills in it. And of course, if you don't buy real estate whereby you can uh, look after a portfolio, well, then of course, you're going to run into a position where you stall and really fear taking on more debt. Now, there are some differences in the real estate market, of course. There are negatively geared properties, which quite often carry with them superior capital growth. They're usually negatively geared for a reason. That reason is quite often the price or the area those properties are in. The consensus has seen capital growth in the past. And of course, quite often those areas are considered the better places to own real estate, more blue chip neighborhoods, more leafy neighborhoods, they come at a price. And of course, quite often that price is disproportionate to what the rent you can get on those assets is. And of course, for a lot of property investors, that means the burn rate to support the assets too high for them. And even though the property creates superior capital growth, the burn to achieve that capital growth of loss out of your back pocket 
is too high for many people. And of course, as we know, in Australian real estate, there are some tax benefits out there. If you buy brand new property, you can claim full depreciation. If you buy uh, property that is produced after 1987, you can claim part depreciation. Anything older than 1987, i.e. 1975, there is is no depreciation allowance in the asset unless it's gone through some sort of transformation. So negatively geared properties are great for the right people. Certainly high income earners usually go out and buy a lot of negatively geared properties and get a lot of tax deductions. The, The ability to eliminate your tax comes from fundamentally negatively geared real estate. Now, of course, we need to understand if we want capital growth, which is really where real wealth comes from real estate, it is very common based on the interest rate of the day to have a burn rate. It's very common for investors, for example, to take on a loss of $100 or $200, which is manageable for a property as an investment, i.e. personally, I'd rather burn $200 a week if I'm going to get superior capital growth and a superior total return when it comes to real estate. Now, total return is something I think I've talked about a few times on this program or this podcast, but really it's the idea that today, you know, some properties perform at 7% capital growth. There's a history of them performing at 7% capital growth. What that means, the compounding ability for that real estate is to double in 10 years. Uh, You take a 7% return, you add a 3% or 4% gross return, you've got an accumulation or total return of, you know, 10 or 11%, which is a really, really healthy number. Again, uh, for many property investors, they'd prefer to burn a couple of hundred dollars a week to own really leafy blue chip real estate. And of course, it's a great strategy. There's a lot of evidence to show that more people come wealthy out of that strategy than positive cash flow. If you want to use evidence-based investment, most people become wealthy out of real estate through capital growth. How you control that capital growth is, of course, a big part of the puzzle. And there are three components to that. There is you, there is the renter, and there is the tax man. Obviously, uh, the dynamic of those three really depends on whether you're going to be negatively geared, neutrally geared, or positively geared, or positive cash flow. So in other words, uh, with negatively geared real estate, what's happening is that the rent is not capable of producing enough income. So you, after all your expenses, basically have to top up that rent with money from your wage. For high income earners, they get a deduction for that. So it's a very, very smart thing to do. It's, it's a normal thing to do in here in Australia. Um, obviously, we went through some elections 
of recent times where the idea of obliterating negative gearing was on the cards never uh, came about. And of course, from a productivity point of view, negative gearing is very healthy for the real estate market because it allows more production of real estate. Um, There are some arguments to whether that creates affordability constraints, but it is what it is. Now, neutrally geared real estate is just the idea that, again, like by the time you do your mathematics, you've got uh, enough rent, perhaps enough tax deductions where you're claiming some money back because you own real estate where there is a deductible amount and depreciation and your cost to own that real estate is basically negligent. It's It really costs you zero at the end of every week. Again, neutrally geared real estate can quite often carry a very good capital growth rate. Of course, capital growth is really where real wealth comes from. Now, if I examine my own portfolio by way of example, I could trade out of huge amounts of capital growth, millions of dollars of capital growth if I wanted to, and go and buy cash flow. Capital growth can buy cash flow. This is why it's very important quite often to build a portfolio around capital growth because if you can afford to do that, particularly during your working career, you can always buy cash flow later. What do I mean by that? Well, of course, let's uh, imagine today there are properties in regional communities. You can pick them up for $200,000. They rent for $500 a week. On paper, that would look fantastic, right? And potentially it even does create income. However, that property for $200,000 in this day and age is $200,000 for a reason because it's never had capital growth. However, let's imagine I wanted to trade in my million dollars for that $500 a week producing piece of real estate for $200,000. I could sell up, grab my million dollars and go and buy outright five of those $200,000 properties producing $500 a week. I would use growth and the ability to use huge amounts of results from capital growth orientated properties to achieve that if that was my goal. Of course, the alternative for a lot of people is to buy what we refer to as cash flow positive real estate. Real estate which produces more revenue from its rents with the ability at the end of every week to take home a bit extra in your back pocket. So the money from the rent, if you like, gets added to your income base unless you own the property in a company or trust structure. So positive cash flow investments are out there in Australia. You can go to all sorts of places to find high yielding real estate. It does exist. There are some still today volatile mining communities in Western Australian outback areas where rents are really good. Um, The ability for volatility in those areas is very, very high. Capital growth 
uh, is not proven. There's no real evidence that those areas can sustain capital growth over a long time. So again, coming back to the principle of real estate, we want to make growth first, but if it costs us a little bit to do that, that's fine as long as we are in a capital growth orientated investment. The opposite is positive cash flow. And of course, positive cash flow today is the principle that you're going to buy a property, it's going to rent really, really well, the rent will cover your mortgage, and it will put a surplus of dollars in your back pocket. Usually that surplus of dollars after you account for your mortgage costs, your maintenance costs, any operating costs that you've got to look after, uh, is very, very uh, basically basic. It can be, you know, $100 a week, um, $200 a week, which again creates an illusion that that's a lot of money. Like $200 a week is not a lot of money. I don't know what planet $200 a week is a lot of money. Uh, you know, buying a pizza, two pizzas and, uh, you know, a garlic bread and, you know, a can of Coke or something on the weekend and having an Uber driver drop it off, you're like, you're in it for a hundred bucks. So again, like I'd prefer to control properties that cost me two pizzas, a Coke and a garlic bread, if it's going to create me more capital growth and buy income later. Now, buying income later is a real science. Like it's something that you go through because in real estate, there are three phases to being a real estate investor. There's the acquisition phase, very important phase, because for a lot of Australians today, they cannot, by virtue of lending, borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow again. So if you allocate your borrowing power to inferior assets what can happen to you, you can spend 10 years of your borrowing working life with inferior assets, which don't grow. And of course, they might get a very good rental return. You're getting an extra hundred bucks a week in your back pocket, um, but you create no real wealth. And so there are three phases to this system. There's the acquisition then there's the consolidation, then there's the final part, which is living off the income. Now, when you've acquired enough assets, you simply, at a, you're at a point in your life where the acceleration of those assets should create an ability for you to eventually go into a debt-free consolidated place where, of course, you consolidate what you've bought, um, pay down some debt, maybe sell a property to pay off another property. Then all of a sudden, you're in a place where you've got more cash flow and a better gearing point. You've got lower debt levels on your assets. This really does allow you choice as a property investor. And for me personally, just speaking openly, like how I approach uh, real estate investment with rental returns is high income communities whereby I get really, really good rents, like $1,000 a week for some of my properties. I use short stay Airbnb for some of my properties to get accelerated rental returns. And of course, I use equity 
In other words, I use wealth, like capital growth, if you like, to do joint ventures and make year on year, you know, anywhere from 15 to 35% return. Um, again, like it's a different model. Again, it takes a little bit of sophistication to get there. That, particularly with the joint ventures, is a sophisticated investor model. And again, like when your wealth accumulates, you are deemed in Australia to be a sophisticated investor. When you become a sophisticated investor, the investments, by virtue of their naming convention, are fundamentally actually a little bit better. Rich people like being rich. And so what happens is when you're deemed a sophisticated investor in this country, you actually get exposed to much higher returns. There is obviously a volatility correlation to that, but you have the runs on the board, the time in the saddle to comprehend them as sophisticated investments. So, you know, I'm involved in projects um, and, you know, I put my money in, I get a return. Uh, it takes, you know, uh, a process to, to unfold but it creates chunks of cash flow. Much, much more superior than that extra 100 bucks a week from the real estate you can get from positive cash flow. Now, positive cash flow real estate is, uh, again, can be very, very, very good. There are some trade-offs, right? And today, I just want to talk to you about you know, what I think are the better trade-offs, the better good things, the and of course, uh, some of the negative things when it comes to choosing positive cash flow real estate. So the first place you're going to find positive cash flow properties is really rural town centers. And again, <clears throat> when you're analyzing rural real estate, small cities in our states, if you like, which are typically away from the coast, more, uh, you know, into into farming land, so to speak, uh, you know, there's, there's good bits and bad bits. What you quite often find is even in rural communities today, the best real estate is negatively geared. The worst real estate where there's lower socioeconomic problems, quite often the property is cheap or lower in price for a reason. And of course, that reason is it's it's kind of the worst or the wrong side of the tracks. And as such, it doesn't attract owner-occupiers. When owner-occupiers are not interested in real estate, the growth rate is tough. You know, it doesn't get the, the amount of growth that it could. But again, if you want to find a property today where you know, you're spending $400,000 and it's renting for $550 a week. No doubt there are plenty of rural town centers where that's a possibility. For you as a property investor, the benefit of course is it'll probably uh, won't cost you extra out of your back pocket to run that property. But it can be uh, a little bit of fool's gold at times. So just a word of warning, you know, obviously rural communities, regional areas have done fairly well of recent time because of the great spatial transformation. And of course, 
what that is has done is create a new price barrier for even some of the better regional communities or rural communities. Of course, country towns are another place where you can find cash flow positive properties. Country towns are very much places where, you know, like you 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 know, they were developed back in the horse and cart day. They literally only existed because the horse could travel, you know, 30 miles that day and needed to stop and rest. So you'd have all these country towns spring up across Australia. And of course, when you go through them, they're half boarded up. And of course, uh, lots of broken windows and so forth. So probably, you know, if I was going to go back into finding some positive cash flow properties, I would go into rural town centers, not so much country towns. Probably another great place for cash flow positive real estate is peri-urban areas. Areas which sit off the shelf of major cities. Peri-urban is just basically the idea that a area is both rural, but it's urban. And of course, um, off uh, many, many cities today, there are places which are considered peri-urban where people go for that weekend getaway. And of course, if they are weekend getaway peri-urban areas, drivable areas like an hour out of town, quite often they can contract attract a lot of localized tourism. Of course, that does give you the advantage of doing something like short stay in a peri-urban area. I just looked at a peri-urban area outside of Adelaide. Great place, huge rental return. Um, The reason it stacks up is it's both urban but rural, if that kind of makes sense. So you can find cash flow in places like that. Certainly when it comes to other types of country or uh, peri-urban or rural communities. I like viticulture communities, places where there are vineyards. Vineyards obviously equals wine. Humans love wine. Where there is wine, there is good times. And of course, where there are good times, there are also people prepared to pay extra to use those properties, particularly from a short-stay uh, perspective. So some good good ways to enhance your cash flow. Certainly, the next sort of way to, to find cash flow properties is, is really just to buy something dirt cheap. Like, you know, obviously things are cheap for a reason. Um, High-growing, cheap real estate is kind of like, an oxymoron, it, it, it's it, like it shouldn't exist, right? Like you're finding a property for $100,000. Why is it $100,000 in 2022? Like we've been through 30 years of economic growth in Australia and a property is still $100,000 that has seen all 30 years of that economic growth. The reason is... Obviously, it's not connected to the main economic underbelly which has driven successful 
house price growth. So cheap properties, as I've alluded to in the past, obviously come with the caveat, like quite often they are ill-equipped when it comes to their fixtures and fittings. They need a lot of money quite often spent on them. And of course, cheap properties and run-down properties quite often are are the same in the one, right? Like, is it cheap and run-down or is it just cheap and a bargain? Like, there is two different, obviously, opportunities when it comes to what that looks like. So cheap properties, we do need to be very, very mindful. They're cheap for a reason. Are you actually buying something, for example, with a 7% return and 1%, 2% growth? Obviously, that's not going to make you wealthy. It's it's just going to mean you've got a high-yielding asset that does not create growth. So we want the growth if we can create the growth, we're going to be happier. I'm telling you, like, I know property investors that I started on a similar journey with. They own 10 properties today. They're getting, uh, you know, some some good rents from those properties, but they missed out on $7 million worth of capital growth along the way, which, like, for them is a massive, massive head uh, you know, it, it messes with their head and they hate what they own because they missed the upside of growth. Obviously, uh, uh, one way to facilitate um, cash flow is to buy multiple income streams. Houses with granny flats, uh, properties with two properties on one title, three properties on one title, blocks of flats, are also a great way to control more income using one use being the one piece or one property. Um, And of course, this is a pretty good model. If you can find yourself a block of flats today, it's it's a pretty good model. Obviously, going back to the previous conversation, if they're run down as a block of flats, I'd be very, very skeptical to buy it based on just not considering how to renovate it or transform it because you'll buy yourself a contingent liability. But certainly today, there are some great high-yielding blocks of flats. Uh, I've certainly uh, you know, uh, been part of that puzzle. Um, you know, up in Mudgee, through family trust, you know we've got a block of a block of flats up there. Um, I've got duplexes, so blocks of or t- dual income or triple income, or uh, you know a block of flats is a great way to stimulate more cash flow out of your real estate today. To build a brand new block of flats is obviously over two or three million dollars to do it as a duplex like two houses connected to each other you're really in it a starting point around a million dollars for a granny flat and a brand new house you know you depending on what area you're probably in it for 850 to a million dollars so to do it new it's very very difficult today for most property investors budget and of course the yield um, is uh, not 
not necessarily going to even create positive cash flow today, but it may down the track. Um, you know, I bought a duplex up in Newcastle, you know, some time ago. It's been a great performing property, um, you know, from memory. I think I paid six seventy. The debt on that property is like five hundred. The rent though is a thousand dollars a week. So I'm debt. I'm getting a you know ten percent return. Obviously, it is a double income property, so it creates two forms of income. But again, to rebuy that same property today, you would be at $1.3 million. So it's very, very difficult to apply this strategy really based on today's elasticity of costs. However, there are blocks of flats out there in, again, rural markets, some strange little regional areas. And if they're not run down and you can afford it, then uh, definitely it could be a great investment for you. Just a caveat though, for banks, they generally lower the amount they're going to lend, meaning you need a larger deposit when you buy blocks of flats. When you're, for example, buying four apartments on one block, you know, you can be subject to, for example, a 70% loan-to-value ratio. So it means you need a 30% deposit. So when the bank sees a liquidity risk, they lower the loan-to-value ratio. So you can't really go out and buy this stuff necessarily on a 90% loan-to-value ratio and pay lenders mortgage insurance. It doesn't exist. So quite often, people who... Uh, have already substantial amount of wealth, tend to, again, as I say, circle back and take out a block of flats with uh, with cash. I've owned a few blocks of flats over the years. I had one up in Toowoomba there for about sort of 10 years, block of four-bedroom four townhomes. I got offered a, a pretty good price when um, I, uh, you know, when I owned the property, I ended up taking it. Um, but yeah, I couldn't even re-emulate that deal. Um, so yeah, probably I should have, in hindsight, maybe um, kept it. I think looking back on the real estate market, I mean, what you what you do learn is even though you, you think, well, okay, well, yeah, I might sell this one and then, you know, upgrade to something else. If you don't buy and sell in the same market and a new cycle comes along, you miss out quickly. I bought and sold that property in a different cycle. A new cycle came along and guess what? Buying that same block of flats today would not be possible, certainly at the price of which I put it together at. Now, the next cash flow conversation is inner city apartments. Yes, the cash cow of the inner city. Of course, inner city is um, an amazing, amazing place to own real estate. Obviously, you know, I was looking at this today. There are 10,000 cities in the world, 10,000. Australia has something like uh, four cities in the top 15 livable places in the world. There are 10,000 cities. So when you think about it, right, like uh, a property today, which I own in the inner city in Br Brisbane, it's a highly livable place. Um, where it's located today is... Out of 10,000 cities in the world, considered 
absolutely excellent. The rent I get on that property is very, very high, but I can also use it with things like short stay. And what's interesting with that particular property, it gets a high yield, but the short stay yield is is exponentially higher. Today, the short stay world is certainly under attack. You know, Brisbane's got extra council fees for short stay. Um, you've got obviously some council areas basically locking out people from doing short stay unless they've already done it, um, which again creates a monopoly for those people that are doing it. And so certainly I want to be part of monopolies as they unfold. In Australia, there is a concept known as existing use title. What it basically means is if a property has had one use and it is being used that way, then um, it can hold on to that use. And so if you think, I don't know if you sort of grew up in Australia and you had the local milk bar and the local milk bar was basically a house up the top and, you know, a shop down the bottom. It might have been zoned residential, but it had a use as a shop. That use stays with the real estate, even though it's zoned residential. With short stay, I do see the, as a, uh, I'm being a prophet now, that if you are paying, for example, Brisbane's extra council rate levy, they basically have put up their council rates on short stay properties. It's kind of artificially getting a license and as such, you get the existing use. This happened in Noosa with Airbnb. Uh, Noosa now, people who have participated in short stay get to keep their property in the short stay pool Uh, those who want to start short stay can no longer do it there's no licenses available council will blacklist that property for example so it's an interesting space it's a fluid space very evolving but inner city properties offer a great solution to what that looks like obviously in times where you know you you can short stays great but also just simple things like furnishing property you don't even need short stay like you you can do quality six 12 month leases where you furnish up a property and just get a much higher rental return i mean i first discovered this doing a deal in Kirribilli, Sydney. Uh, you know, just the the rent of the day, for example, was like $700 a week for a, at that time. It was, a, you know, going back, say, 20 years almost. Um, at that time, it was like $700 a week, which was a lot of money. But you could get $1,100 a week for the same apartment if you just furnished it with a TV, uh, basically, you know, at the time, a few beds, your couch, a fridge, because a lot of big companies relocate staff that just want a nimble lifestyle. So, for example, you know, KPMG, Deloitte, Deutsche Bank, um, you know, Credit Suisse, all these companies are located in the CBD. 
they need quite often skilled people from overseas that come on temporary visas, those people are never going to buy a family home in the suburbs nor want to live in an area where they can make no friends being in the suburbs. And so in places like Sydney, you know, they gravitate to basically doorstep suburbs of the CBD. So you end up getting really, really, really good cash flow from just even doing furnished properties on 12-month leases whereby your positive cash flow, but also going back to the conversation about growth, there obviously is superior growth in obviously good suburbs close to the infrastructure of our CBDs. So doorstep suburbs, you can achieve this, you know, obviously they come with a price tag today, but, you know, you've got um, in Sydney places like Kirribilli, as I said, Surrey Hills, um, quality places where, again, like the person who is earning a same amount, like huge amounts of money, but doesn't have any furniture because they're not from Australia, will rent your furnished property. Um, you know, Brisbane, I mean, I'm doing this in, uh, you know, New Farm. Um, you know, there are there are plenty of quality suburbs. Melbourne, quality doorstep suburbs, places like, uh, you know, Fitzroy, Carlton, uh, Collingwood, you know, quality, quality places. So same concept as to what I was just referring to, but you can do place economy suburbs. Obviously, again, you'll have the ability if you wanted to do short stay, but if you wanted to do long stay with a furniture pack, place suburbs are great. Place suburbs are just suburbs where they're renowned for good things happening and as such you get this high-income transient tenant marketplace. They are people who are playing to paying to stay. And today, there is actually a new type of tenant out in the market. They're workation tenants, which is an interesting dynamic in itself. So you've got people basically traveling the world going, okay, I want to stay in Sydney and I'll work and connect with my office in Singapore but if I'm going to go to Sydney, I'm going to stay in Bondi and I'll rent a furnished property because Bondi is a place. They, of course, pay extra money, more cash flow. Now, the benefit of these type of deals being places and also inner city areas is they also usually come with the caliber and the consensus and the evidence that they have been capital growth markets in the past and no doubt will be capital growth markets in the future. So again, like, you know, it's just another option to consider. Now, I've mentioned place economics in the past, in past podcasts. Place economics is just the idea that in Australia, you know, there are 10 15 great cities that you can own real estate in. Inside those cities, though, there might be anywhere from 50 to 300 suburbs. 
but not all of those suburbs are places that people would ever want to go to when it comes to workations, staycations, uh, or things like short stay or executive rentals. Why? Because there's nothing to do there. They're boring areas. However, fun places obviously offer the attraction magnet to that high-income tenant. So there's few layers to the high-income tenant executive. There's just normal rentals where they rent a property, unfurnished, normal 12, 18-month lease, whatever it may be. You'll find they pay a really good rental return. Then you can add the premium, go furnished. And of course, if you're so inclined and you can get it approved and it makes mathematical sense, you can do Airbnb or short stay. So a really good way to prop up your income if you kind of missed out on the duplex boom, if you missed out on buying the block of flats boom. I mean, these these things are, uh, this is what happens inside of real estate. It's the law of diminishing opportunities, if you like. Um, you know, back in the day, there's, you know, the, the opportunity to buy blocks of flats existed. Today, it's the diminishing opportunity to do that for most people on a, on a simple salary. Um, inner city real estate is the diminishing. It's still probably there, but it's diminishing in its ability. So if you can reach out and grab it, grab it before it goes. Because again, it's what isn't diminishing is you can go to a country town and buy a cash flow piece of real estate. That's not diminishing tomorrow. So I always work like as a acquisitions investor as the law of diminishing opportunities, which of course is a funnel. So again, there are only so many good suburbs that you can get capital growth out, get your hands on them before they disappear. There's only so many good places where you can get a high yielding opportunity close to the CBD, grab them before they disappear. If your strategy, of course, involves creating some extra cash flow. Now, a great way to create extra cash flow is just, again, popular suburbs make so much sense to me because even from suburbia, there are some absolute crackers when it comes to just buying a family home and getting a really good rental return. Um, there are certainly areas whereby, again, going back to the principle of the executive, now the executive brings his family or her family and they want a house, but they, they've they kind of passed the life cycle of obviously living in the inner city or a suburb that faces the city where there's bars and restaurants and cafes. They're looking for something a little bit more... Um, you know, uh, connected. And so what happens is in alpha cities, in cities, there is kind of like the best schools and the best, I guess I always, you know, uh, you know, cautious to say this, but the, the people whom are the most connected, the higher socio, uh, socio people, and as such, like what you find is executives from Credit Suisse want to be part of the better suburbs. And again, 
will pay ridiculous amounts to take out a lease for 12 months if a family home is furnished. So here in Sydney, for example, where I'm from, is very, very common when you analyse what the uh, what what relocation agents are looking for for their executives. It's very common for people to be prepared to pay five, six, seven thousand dollars a week in rent for a family home in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Now, again, it is very, very difficult for most property investors to drop three, four mil to buy real estate in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. It's, you know, it's not going to happen. But, you know, maybe we can tone back our expectation and still grab maybe an uh, inner city apartment to do the same thing. So it's interesting when it comes to the idea of creating income for ourselves from real estate. I like the principle that what we line up today, we're going to use later in life. We don't necessarily need extra cash flow while we have a job. They just fundamentally create more tax for ourselves. However, down the track, when we want to extinguish our working life, we create cash flow. There is one final way to create cash flow, which is commercial real estate. And commercial real estate has its own idiosyncrasies to it. I thought uh, off the back of this episode, I might come back next week and talk to you about commercial real estate. It's obviously really, really good for cash flow. Caveat to it is it's typically much harder to buy and the loan terms are quite often more difficult for people to own the real estate. What's so fascinating in Australia is the layer of how wealth is distributed. See, the more wealth you can create out of real estate, all of a sudden you become a sophisticated investor. When you become a sophisticated investor, you get exposed to more commercial-like returns. So it is a bit of a journey. What is not suitable for most property investors is to jump into commercial real estate because they're less sophisticated and obviously, um, you know, commercial real estate comes with a risk associated to it of, you know, vacancies for many, many years and, you know, there's a lot of complexity. So I'll do and dedicate a whole show to it. So make sure you come back next week and I'll help you understand commercial real estate. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed the show today. Um, I've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. If you feel like you'd love to leave a review, I'd love to get one because I'm trying to obviously get the show out to as many people as possible. Um, And uh, I hope you're enjoying my content. So thanks again for tuning in. Um, I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor,